Let me take a few moments uh, just to review from last week because we're going to be in uh, a really incredible passage of Scripture this morning in verses 5 to 11 in chapter 2. Last week we were in uh, verses 1 to 4. And I mentioned to you that in some ways the church at Philippi was really not unlike uh, our church and others today. In fact, looking ahead, as we did last week to chapter 4, you see that there were uh, two ladies that had a hard time getting along, and we're not sure what the issues were. When we get to that particular text, I'm sure we'll speculate just a little bit what those issues might have been. But we do know that whatever it was, it was actually threatening the unity of their church and to disrupt what God had called them to do there in that small city of Philippi. And it must have been a pretty big deal because when we come to chapter 2, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, uh, believes that that it's so important that he takes uh, the major part of chapter 2, which we could sum up in a plea from Paul to be selfless rather than selfish. And Paul reminds the people in the church at Philippi about the difference that Jesus has made in their lives. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 1. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any, been any comfort that you've experienced from his love, any participation in the Spirit, and I want to remind you again that that word that's used here and in chapter 1 is that Greek word koinonia. It talks about that deep fellowship, uh, that deep partnership uh, that we have because we participate together in the mission of God. If you have any affection and sympathy, we reminded you last week that if you have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you ought to be more affectionate, you ought to be more sympathetic than you would be outside of a relationship with Jesus. And Paul is saying if all of those things have happened to you and you've experienced new life because of Jesus, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to go all the way. Verse 2 says, complete my joy, Paul's joy, as their pastor, as the man who had led many of them to Christ and had helped them to start the church there in Philippi, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Remember, we spent quite a bit of time there last week talking about what our relationship should look like with one another, that our love should be mar- not be marked by, I've known you longer, you're just a little bit better uh, than this person over here that I don't know. And so while we may wave to them and say, Hi, how are you? And they repeat back, fine, how are you? Um, We never go further than that. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, I want you to have the same love for everybody. No matter how long you've known them, I want you to strive to love them all the way in in the manner in which you have been loved. And that word that is translated out of the Greek text is, is the word agape. That's a love that never looks out for itself, but is always looking out for the well-being of other people. I want you to have that same love for all people. I want you to be in full accord and of one mind, on mission, understanding that at the end of the day, it is the gospel that matters. And then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Those are the things we do to accomplish our own goals. Those are the things that are naturally inbred in us as human beings, that depravity in which we are conceived in. Do nothing from selfish ambition for your own goals or conceit for your own glory that people might praise you. But instead, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
Now, I know some of you uh, better than I know others, but when I read that text, it sounds almost impossible to me. Uh, how, How do you get to a place in your life where you stop insisting on your rights or your opinions or having your way? And Paul is going to give us the answer here in Philippians chapter 2. In fact, starting in verse 5, he's going to show us the, purple, the perfect example of what it looks like when we become those kind of people who don't insist upon our rights, who don't have to have it our way, who don't have to have our opinions be paramount. The fact is that when people disagree or argue, many times we come to the point where we use phrases like this, see if you've ever done this, where you say, well, we will just agree to disagree, right? How many of you have ever said that? You've probably said it, some of you, I probably have, several times this week. You look at a person and after a while, you realize that they're not going your direction and you sure as heck aren't gonna go their direction And so you end a conversation by saying, well, we will just agree to disagree. In other words, let's both be right in our own eyes, right? Maybe you've had a conversation like that with your spouse this week, where you've had a disagreement on something and you come to the point where you go, well, we'll just agree to disagree on that one. In other words, I'm right in my eyes and you're right in your eyes and we just walk away. This way, neither one of us has to defer to the other's opinions, desires, or perspectives. The secret, however, Paul says in this particular text, the secret of unity always begins with humility. You think about that. It's true in every relationship that you enjoy in this planet, whether it's uh, your marriage relationship, whether it's parenting a middle schooler or a high schooler, It begins with humility. Your relationship with friends, your relationship with coworkers, with neighbors, with those that you may attend classes with. And by the way, it's true not only with those that we are in relationship with and we have at least something in common with, it's also true when we interact with people who we vehemently disagree with. Any kind of unity begins with humility. One Bible teacher offered this insight. He said this, Christians can achieve peace not merely on a truce or a cold war or an agreed upon settlement, but peace, which is a mutual sense of wrongdoing. And at the end of the day, isn't it true uh, that for all of us, we are sinful, we are depraved people, we are naturally selfish. But unity begins with a mutual sense of wrongdoing. Mutual, did, did you get that word? He said, each person acknowledging they've contributed to it and buying the past and forgive, bearing the past in forgiveness. The result is a deeper sense of acceptance than ever before. When we come to this point, he said, the quarrel actually helps unity rather, actually helps to unify rather than to destroy. It will result in deeper understanding and love than ever before. And many of us often believe in many situations that the best thing that we can do is just simply agree to disagree. And it is if you are totally, if I am totally dependent upon myself. But if you're a follower of Jesus, Paul begins here in verse 5 by saying this. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you should have a different mindset, a different disposition, a different perspective. Let's let's, uh, jump in in verse 5. Paul said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
Make this the model of every move that you make. Make this your disposition in life. Have this mindset. And what is that mindset? It is the mindset that actually caused Jesus to come to this world and live amongst people like you and like me. And by the way, you don't just uh, go and get this mindset. It's not as if you can walk out today and say, I'm going to find that mindset. I'm going to get me just a little bit of that. I'm going I'm to stop by and purchase a little bit of that. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you already have it. If you're truly a follower of Jesus, then he has come to live within you. And you already have this mindset. It is in you and should be just as your depravity is natural to who you are without Jesus. This mindset should be natural to those of us that have experienced new life in Jesus. And what Paul is saying here is stop suppressing it. You have the ability not to be selfish, but to have a totally different mindset. And when you have this mindset, the same mindset which is yours, it's already in you in Christ Jesus, then you begin to live your life a little bit differently. Think about how your life might change this week. Think about how, my, how much your marriage might be different this week if you chose to live in the mindset which is yours in Christ Jesus. If your disposition began to change. Think of the coworkers that right now you're locking heads with because they've got a perspective and you've got a perspective and so far you have agreed to disagree. Think about your relationship with your middle school or your high school student. If you suddenly had the mindset, had the disposition, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is this mindset? It's this is it. This is it. Now here's what you need to understand. If you are a new follower of Jesus, if you haven't been a student of the word, then you look at this passage and you think it's like any other passage that we're going to go through in the book of Philippians. Can I caution you and tell you that this is, this is not like just any normal passage, any few verses here in the book of Philippians. Uh, any, any rock climbers in here? Any mountain climbers in here? <laughs> Great. I can see why. I'm not either. Why would I want to climb to the top of a mountain, Right? You can imagine, though, as you've watched movies where there have been uh, mountain climbers and they're getting ready to, uh, to go to the peak. Imagine being at the base of Mount Everest and you're looking at the top. That's where we are right now in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, right? We're right at the base of that mountain and we're going, whatever this is, this is really huge, this is really, really big. We are coming to what is undoubtedly one of the greatest, most significant passages in all of the book of Philippians, if not in the New Testament. You say, why is that? Here is very simply why that is, because this is the incarnation. Uh, some of you, if you're uh, studies, uh, students of doctrine, you may know this as the kenosis passage. Uh, the kenosis passage refers to kenosis, referring to self-emptying. This is the moment, this is when God decides that Jesus is going to come down to earth and he's going to live amongst us. And now for some of us, because we've been to church for so long and we've seen flannel graph stories since we were just little bitty kids, we've lost the gravity of what that actually means, that God decides that he's going to come down to earth and he's going to take upon himself the limitations of a human being while being 100% God, he is also going to be 100% man and he is going to live amongst us. Verse 6 says, "...who, though he was in the form of God..." 
It's important for you to understand that he didn't simply look like God. He was God. Now that blows my mind. And before you start trying to wrap your, uh, your mind around that concept, um, you're not going to be totally able to. I said to my daughter last night, she came and sat down on the sofa next to me and she said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said to her to have fun with her, I'm preaching on the kenosis passage. You know the kenosis passage, right? And she had said, I have absolutely no clue what you just said and what that means. And I said, well, it's the idea that God emptied himself and he took upon himself the, the form of a servant and he, and, and, and he, and he, and he became like us. And she said, I don't get that. She said, that's just impossible for me to understand. And that's true. But it's important to understand that he didn't simply look like God. He was God. We might say it this way. How many of you watched the Super Bowl? There was at some point in the game, in fact, a good portion of the game, when you felt totally confident, right? When you get up a certain point and you go, all we have to do now is just hold the line. All we have to do is just maintain. We just swap possessions. We'll be okay. But then Tom Brady had what we would call uh, a good outing, right? In the sports world, they might say that. He He was in good form in the Super Bowl, right? We would say that what we saw with our eyes in his appearance and his performance was a perfect expression of his inward ability, For several of us, depending on if you're a huge football fan, I sat there all the way through, even through the third quarter, going, he's going to do it. I just know he's going to do it. I've watched him do it so many times. I know it's inside that man. I know what he's capable of. And then all of a sudden, you saw everything that we saw with our eyes, the appearance, the performance, became a perfect expression of what was on the inside. That's a great way to... Give an example of what Paul means when he said, who though he was in the form, the Greek word is morphe, of God. John 1, 1 to 3 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And even though he was 100% God, the the last part of verse 6 says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself. Now realize that he didn't empty himself of his deity. He couldn't have done that any more than we could empty ourselves of our humanity. When he came from heaven to earth, he didn't come simply to show us what God was like. He came to this earth to show us what we ought to be, what we should be. He didn't give up his rights as God. He gave up the right to enjoy the rights of being God. Now, I know you stayed up late last night watching a basketball game, all right? So some of you are just a little groggy. So I, I want to make sure that you hear what I just said. He gave up the right to enjoy the rights of being God. The idea is that he didn't have to hold on to his equality with God as something to use for his own advantage, And you might ask, well, what about his miracles? This was the Father working through him as he walked on this earth as a man. He demonstrated for us that we should live lives that as God empowers us and God fills us with his indwelling spirit, he gives us everything that we need to do what he's called us to do. Now, most of us as dads, especially if you have boys, you understand what it means uh, to give up the right to enjoy some of your rights. All right, I illustrate it like this. When my boys were little, um, one of their favorite things to do was to wrestle around on the ground, right? 
And uh, when they were little, it was great fun for me, right? Because I, I, I was bigger, still, still am bigger. Uh, I was uh, stronger, right? And so we would get down on the ground. And, and even when both of them were there, I could still easily, with one arm, arm behind my back, in fact, sometimes they'd say, put one arm behind your back. And you could still, with one arm, you could, and, and you knew that you had the power that you could, you could, you could literally hurt them if you wanted to, Right? But you gave up the right to enjoy your rights, even though you knew you had the ability to be able to destroy them physically, you didn't use that power to do that. Now, it was different when we played checkers or when we played Monopoly. I have bankrupted my children many times uh, in Monopoly. But when it came to strength, I knew what I was capable of doing, but I gave up the right to enjoy my right. And this is where it gets practical for us. Our humility begins when we, be, when we give up the right to enjoy our rights. Now, if this were a marriage series, we would stop right here and we would give practical illustration of what that looks like in marriage. But I know for me, that's the problem. And probably for many of you, in my depravity, I don't want to lay aside my rights. And you don't either. I want to share with you my opinion, and I want you actually very quickly to embrace my opinion as well. I don't want to uh, do away with what my desires might be for anyone or for anything, but that must happen, and it can happen, when we live in the mindset which is ours in Christ Jesus. We already have it. Look what he did. The Bible says, by taking on himself the form, again, that Greek word morphe, of a servant. He didn't just give up his rights to enjoy, give up his right to enjoy his rights as God. He became a servant. And, and just like in the other text, when we see this word form, he didn't just look the part, Right? He didn't just walk out Tom Brady onto a football field and you go, I think that's him. It looks like him. That's his jersey number. No, when it came time, he was actually not just physically appeared that way, but it was obvious what was inside. When he took upon himself the morphe of a servant, he didn't just look the part, he actually became a servant. Some of you remember students of the word the scene in John chapter 13, Jesus gathered with his disciples uh, for dinner right before Passover. In Bible times, many of you have heard it said, you know this to be true, that the dusty and dirty conditions of the region, they wore sandals. They would come in uh, for dinner, and after wearing their sandals, it necessitated foot washing. And although the disciples most likely would have been happy to wash the feet of Jesus, the thought of actually washing the feet of one another was something they couldn't even begin to comprehend. Remember last week we talked about them, how they had an argument along the way, and Jesus said, what were you talking about? What did they say? We were talking about who gets to do the foot washing when we get, no, that's what they were talking about. They were talking about who is the greatest amongst us. So we know from other texts, Mark 9 in particular, that, that they weren't going to wash each other's feet. Peers didn't wash uh, one another's feet, except for rare occasions, and that was always a mark of love. Now, the foot washing was saved for the servants. And yet you remember that text, if you know it and you're familiar with it in John chapter 13. You can imagine as the disciples were sitting there with their feet uh, up and their dusty, dirty feet, nasty feet on the table, 
and they began to hear Jesus pour that water out into that basin, they knew what was about ready to take place. And that is because the Son of God, as Jesus humbles himself and takes upon himself the morphe of a servant. The text goes on to say he's born in the likeness of men. He looked like, and this is, this is fascinating for me to comprehend, he looked like just like any other Jewish baby when he was born. And he grew up and his appearance would have been like any other man of his own age and nationality. Verse 8 says, And being found in human form, different Greek word, by the way, this is the word schema. The word translated here is different. Here the word tells us that he conformed to the human experience. And this is what's really great and awesome when we look at this incarnation passage, when we look at this, at what Jesus did. He became a human being and experienced all of the limitations, all of the humiliations that come with humanity, but he did it without sin. That's really cool for me to think about. You think about it this way, he was tired, just like you and I get tired. He experienced a stress just like you and I get stressed from time to time. And there were times when he was disappointed. Disappointed at what was taking place with a particular group of people. Disappointed at the circumstances of his earthly life at that particular moment. There were times of sadness. You remember that when he, when he, when he heard that his friend Lazarus had died? He was so sad, he grieved. He was betrayed by those that were closest to him. He experienced all the limitations, all the humiliations that come with humanity. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the text says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Do you know this? If Jesus simply would have come to this earth to be a good example we would have known how we should live, but we would never have been capable of living that life. Our sin obviously required a perfect sacrifice and a willing sacrifice. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He made a decision. He was mocked. He was spit upon. And he willingly gives up his life. The one who knew no sin becomes sin for us. He dies a death the one who created life embraces death. And then the text goes on to say, not just any death, but even death on a cross. At this point in human history, the, uh, the, the idea of being crucified was the most degrading, the most loathsome experience that a person could have at that particular point coming to the end of their life. In fact, polite uh, Roman society considered the mention of the cross to be an obscenity which we find that to be just unbelievable now, right? Because you look at a church building and on top of the steeple is a what? It's a cross. If we were to look at what some of you might even be wearing around your neck right now, it might be a cross or a tattoo on your ankle. It might be a cross. But no one in Philippi would have used the cross as a symbol for their faith. There were no crosses that were embedded upon their Bibles. They wore no necklaces. There was no steeple that was uh, topped with a cross at a church. God not only was willing to die as Jesus' death, 
but he experienced death on the cross. And the result of humbling himself and willingly go to the cross, verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. I hear something that I learned in the last couple weeks studying this text. This particular phrase here Paul uses is found nowhere else in the New Testament. It literally, if we were translating it correctly into the English language, it would say something like this. Therefore, God super exalted him. Nowhere else in the New Testament is the phrase used. God super exalted him. Christ has received the highest exaltation, and it's incomprehensible. He's in a class all by himself. And the reality is this, that his humiliation on the cross resulted in his resurrection and his ascension. And now Paul says he is super exalted and he reigns with God in heaven forever. And you know, we see that principle, by the way, to get practical and how it applies to us. We see it all the way through scripture, don't we? That our world says, if you want to be known, if you want to make a name for yourself, if you want to experience great wealth, if you want to leave your mark, then you got to look out for you. you got to look out for number one, and you got to pursue that at all costs. Selfish ambition, conceit. You have to make sure all the people are saying all the right things about you. And yet the New Testament, when Jesus came in the Incarnation, established very different principles, that after humility comes exaltation. James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he'll do what? He'll exalt you. He'll lift you up. 1 Peter 5.6 says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the right time he will exalt you. It always begins with humility. And his name is above every name. A simple Google search speaks volumes in our world today, right? I mean, when you search, you ever search your name, right? Not found. <laughs> yeah, that's me. That's my life, right? Yesterday, I searched the name of Jesus on Google. In less than a second, I got 842 million search results. And I looked at each one of them because I was fascinated by the and I searched some other people that you would know and that I would know. Nobody comes even close except for just blips of time based on who they are. If you search the name Trump right now, by the way, you would find just over a billion hits in less than a second. Uh, some good, some bad, but you would find search results, right? But the name of Jesus, 842 million times. And here's what we know to be true. No matter where you travel on this planet, most, most people have heard the name of Jesus. And Paul said this, verse 10, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to, glory of, to the glory of God the Father. I want you to look at your knees right now. Just stop where you are. If you've got your Bible on your lap, just take your hands and kind of put your, put, your, put your hands on your knees right now. All right, some of you never want to do what somebody asks you to do from the front. I get that, right? So you don't have to touch them. Just look at them, all right? Those knees. The text says that one day those knees are going to bow before the King, the God of the universe and are going to confess that Jesus is Lord one day. When is that day? None of us knows when that day is. But one day, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Every knee and every tongue, move your tongue around in your mouth right now. Think about all the things that your tongue has said this week and will say in this next week. One day, that tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those in the world that have enjoyed fame, those that have enjoyed money and possessions, people whose names we know, we watch their movies Some of you watched them last Sunday night as they all dressed up and praised themselves. Yes, even those people. We listen to their music. We watch them compete in in sporting events. Those people that lead our governments and whose names are known all across the, 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 uh, the world, all of those knees are going to bow one day. All of those tongues are going to confess. Every, Every human being that ever has been that ever will be on this planet, all of those knees will bow, all of those tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he came to this earth to save sinners for the glory of God. And here's one thing that we know for sure. While life is unsure and you don't know what might happen in the next hour or tomorrow, we do know this, that death is certain. James chapter 4, James says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then you vanish away. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed that a man wants to die and after this the judgment. It's important in this text to understand that we're not just acknowledging that every knee is bowing and every tongue is confessing the, the, the name of Jesus, but they're confessing him that he is Lord. There are so many of us that, that know who Jesus is. And so many people that even respect who Jesus is. And they might even say that they love the whole concept of Jesus. The question is not, do you know Jesus? It's, have you acknowledged him as Lord of your life? Have you turned over the keys of your life to him or simply given him a room in the house and yet you've maintained possession? Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The misery is great for those who one day will bow their knee and will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. But how awesome is it on this side of eternity when we come to understand this passage that God in all of his glory left heaven to come and live amongst us in order that he might die a death so that we might come into a relationship with him that we were created to have. That's awesome. And that becomes then the basis for our unity. And it all begins with humility. It all begins with the example that Jesus gave us. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, and uh, if you're looking for a good book to read, you know, besides The Shack, all right? Which let me just sidelight that. Stay away from that. Don't waste your money at the movie. All right. Can I just say that and not have to say anything else? All right. If you're looking for something that's really great and awesome and you've never read it, pick up C.S. Lewis's book, classic book, Mere Christianity. In that book, he wrote this We must not think pride is something God forbids because he's offended at it, or that humility is something he demands as due to his own dignity, as if God himself was proud. He is not in the least worried about his dignity. The point is, he wants you to know him, 
wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of a touch with him, you will in fact be humble, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all of your life. He's trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible, trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we all got ourselves up and are strutting about like the little idiots we are. Quote. <laughs> C.S. Lewis says it. You can just say idiot, right? I mean, if you're just saying it, that's not appropriate. But when C.S. Lewis says it, you can just quote it. He closed that particular section by saying this. I wish I had got a bit further with humility myself. If I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort of taking the fancy dress off, getting rid of all the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all of its posing and posturing. To get even near it, selflessness, even for a moment, he said this, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. And that, my friends, is where unity begins. In a church, in a marriage, in parenting, in the workplace, in your neighborhood. To be truly selfless. Would you stand with me? And I want to do something a little bit different this morning. Because this is such an important, incredible text. And I want you to remember this. Do you ever, when you're, when you're reading your Bible, um, anybody ever read out loud? I do that sometimes, and by the way, a lot of times when I read out loud, I read in the message, okay? It's a paraphrase, not a great translation, but a great paraphrase, and I read out loud. Sometimes when I'm reading out loud, the words just come alive to me as opposed to if I'm just reading them, okay? Um, what I want to do, do we have that, guys? Here's what I want to do as we close. I want to read this together, and I want you to read every single word with me in view of what you've learned over the last couple weeks, what this passage really means about how we enjoy unity in our church and in our homes, in our neighborhoods. Unity begins with humility, which was modeled perfectly by Jesus Christ in the incarnation. Let's read in view of that. Let's read it together. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that awesome? And if we live that way, I'm telling you what, man, it'll be, it'll be one awesome thing to be part of this fellowship that we call Northwest Community Church. If you live that way in your home as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, if you live that way in your relationships, in your friendships, outside of this fellowship, we will experience unity. But unity begins with humility.